yes, I mean to give. You are who I love. You are who I love. You who beat and did not beat the odds. You who knows that any good thing you have is the result of someone else's sacrifice. You who fights for reparations. You are who I love, standing at the courthouse with the sign that reads, no justice, no peace. Singing Leonard Cohen to the snow, you with glitter on your face, wearing a kilt and violet lipstick. You are the edges and shores, in the rooms of quiet, in the rooms of shouting, in the airport terminal, at the bus depot, saying no, and each of us looking out from the gorgeous unlikelihood of our lives at all, finding ourselves here, witnesses to each other's tenderness, which this moment is fury is rage, which this moment is another way of saying you are who I love. You are who I love. You and you and you are who. Please join me in singing our opening song, Come Sing a Song With Me. and welcome to the Washington Ethical Society. I am Amanda Poppy. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. I have the honor to serve as the clergy leader here, and I am so glad that you are joining us this morning, whether you are here in the room or joining us online. Visitors and guests, we hope that you got a blue name tag so we can particularly welcome you and answer any questions that you might have. We love talking about why this community is important to us, and we are eager to hear from you about what you are looking for. 
We hope that you'll join us after the platform service for coffee and cookies in the lobby and in the social hall, and that you'll consider sharing your email with us in the gold sheet that you could pick up at the welcome table when you come in. You can drop that in the collection basket when it passes later in the platform service. I want to remind you to silence your electronic devices so you can be fully present this morning. Though, of course, we'd love for you to check in on social media while you've got your phone out. And I want to welcome a very special uh, person with us this morning. We are delighted to have Jerry Matthews. Jerry, will you just stand up? Jerry Matthews, who is working with our chorus for the next few months. As many folks know, our longtime music director, Bailey, had her last Sunday uh, two weeks ago, and we are so pleased that Jerry was available to come right in so that we can keep singing together. Thank you so much, Jerry. You will, I am sure, enjoy what Jerry brings this morning to us, so please go and introduce yourself uh, in between platform services as well, so she gets to know the community. And now I invite Lydia Fettig to read our statement of purpose so that we might hear our shared values in each other's voices. Lydia, I'm going to have you come right up here this time. Lydia, along with four other West members, serves on the internship committee that supports and helps to supervise Laura Solomon's clergy internship with us over the next two years. We are grateful for your service. Thank you. The Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person. We strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit. With faith in human goodness, we appreciate each person's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together, and we support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and also the earth. We invite you to join our community of children and adults as we work for a world where love and justice cross all borders. As Lydia stays to light our community candle, <laughs> so beautifully. Um, I invite all of us to share in our candle lighting words. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion, the light of understanding, and the fire of commitment to build a brighter future for all. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lydia. And Jen and AV team love the Halloween-themed candle lighting slide. Each week, we ring a chime in solidarity with people around the world. Today, I am particularly mindful of worshipers at a mosque in Afghanistan that was bombed yesterday, and of all who suffer from religiously and politically motivated violence. As we listen to the chime, let us remember our connection to each other and to the world around us. Let us hold in our hearts all that hurts in the world. And let us commit ourselves to all that calls for our work and our love.
I invite you now into a time of deeper meditation. Make yourself comfortable in your seat, however that might mean you hold your body. Close your eyes if you would like. Take a breath with me. Try another one. Begin by noticing your own body. Say hello to the aches and pains. Stretch a bit if you need to, or wiggle your toes. Allow your body to be present here in this moment. Breathe in and out again with your body. Bring your awareness now to the bodies near you. No need to look around, just feel the awareness of another person close by. Imagine them, if you can, all breathing in and out different speeds, different depths, in and out, a chorus of breath, one body of people, each breathing, each here.
Several months ago, I taught an Our Whole Lives or Owl Sexuality Education class for five and six-year-olds. Our first activity was to set up our group covenant or the agreement of how we were going to be together. These kids were well-versed in covenant building. They suggested that we should raise our hands, keep our bodies to ourselves, take turns, and share. They liked the ideals of one person talking at a time, using kind words, and not touching toys that don't belong to us. And in those first five minutes of that first Sunday morning class, I am sure it seemed to them that those rules would be easy to follow. And in the next five minutes of that first Sunday morning class, no one raised their hands. Emily's foot kept ending up in Dylan's lap. Aaliyah took all the blue crayons and would not share with anyone. And Kristen dumped all the toy cars off the daycare's shelves. Friends, my coworkers and I exclaimed. All their little eyes looked up at us waiting. What about our covenant, we asked. Oh, they remembered, right, we keep our bodies to ourselves, one person talks at a time, we share the crayons. And so, we started again. Over and over again, we reminded them of their covenant, of their agreements for how to be together. And over and over again, they remembered and recommitted. They forgave each other, there was reconciliation, and then they forgot, and they reminded each other, and we reminded them, and they forgot, and this is how it went every Sunday. There is a poem accredited to Persian Sufi mystic Rumi, although there is some debate as to whether these words are actually his, which reads, come, come, whoever you are, wanderer, idolater, worshiper of fire, come, even though you have broken your vows a thousand times, come, and yet again, come. Come, even though you have broken your vows a thousand times. I think my five and six-year-old friends broke those promises they made to each other a thousand times every Sunday, and yet they came back and were welcomed back into community again and again and again. I'm not sure when it gets harder than that, but as we get older, community and the agreements we make within it become much more complex. The welcoming gets harder. The whoever you are piece is harder to put into practice. Certainly the re-welcoming and the entering back in piece becomes harder. Of course, rewelcoming and coming back in is not always appropriate. If intentional harm is perpetrated or if one is repeatedly unable to remain safely within a community, it may not be the right time to come back in. I often hear this phrased as all people are welcome, all behaviors are not. I think we sometimes believe that this sort of problem is more prevalent than it actually is. And it's not really the sort of issue I'm talking about. What mostly happens is that we, me and you and everyone else, act in ways that are human and fallible and flawed. What mostly happens is that we, me and you and everyone else, 
We create communities and systems and agreements that are human and fallible and flawed. What mostly happens is that we, me and you, and everyone else, we break our vows thousands of times because we are flawed human beings living within flawed and human systems. Come, come, whoever you are. Come, and yet again, come. One of my favorite moments with the five and six-year-olds occurred several weeks into the class. One of the kids, Tommy, was obsessed with lightsabers. Regularly through the class, Tommy was shooting the other kids, making lightsaber sounds, and insisting they enact dramatic deaths. <laughs> this led to some kids getting super excited and waging war, while others became upset about the violence occurring in the classroom. My co-teacher and I kept trying to redirect the lightsabers and trying to point out that his behaviors was make, were making his peers sad and angry, but the wars just continued. One Saturday, though, another child, Aaliyah, raised her hand halfway through class. Um, Miss Lara, she said, I think we need to add no lightsabers to our list. She pointed to the covenant. Wars are not how we want to be together, she added. She was right, of course. Five-year-olds are frequently wiser than I and nearly always more adept at how to be together in community. Really, she touched on a fundamental piece of how covenants work. At their best, they are documents that shift and breathe and change to fit the shape of the current needs in community. These agreements aren't contractual and are not enforced by consequences. We know as we enter the covenantal relationship that we will fail. The covenant is representative of our highest ideals, our best selves, and our truest aspirations. They are active processes in which we ideally are continually invested and engaged, and then disengaged, and then re-engaged again. What Aaliyah understood and demonstrated was a continued willingness and commitment to being in relationship with Tommy. Even though she hated his lightsabers, she understood that she and Tommy are in community together, and she was committed to finding a way of making the relationship work. I mean, she really wanted him to stop pretending to shoot her while she was trying to learn the basics of the human reproductive system, but I think she had an innate understanding that the covenant was a promise she and Tommy were making to each other. She would share her crayons, even the blue ones. He would stop the lightsaber sounds. They both had to make sacrifices to be together, but the hope and the promise was that the joy and goodness of being in community would outweigh the difficulty. For Aaliyah, it was worth the risk and worth risking trying again. Unitarian Universalist minister, Reverend Dr. Natalie Fenimore writes that creating community, creating places of belonging, quote, is vital and often messy work. We must create the beloved community with an awareness of how difficult it is because it is hard work. It is work that challenges us to bring our whole selves and engage deeply and for the long haul. And it is work that is not well supported by the wider culture 
because the wider culture asks us to see our strength in individualism alone. Our task is to create spaces where we might know and value each other. What revolutionary work this is. No wonder it's hard. It goes against the ways our culture asks us to act. In this week's On Being podcast, journalist Krista Tippett interviewed Reverend Jennifer Bailey and Lennon Flowers, who are two millennials engaging in amazing and innovative social justice work. During the, during the interview, Ms. Flowers said, I think we have forgotten that we can be each other's medicine. Imagine how different our congregation, our community, our world might be if we were to continuously co-create spaces where we might not only know and value one another, but also believe our acts of relationship to be medicinal, to be a step in healing our individual and collective hurts. Recently, I had the opportunity to, facil to facilitate conversations about power, privilege, race, and racism in a large organization following an incident of racially-based conflict. No one really wanted to be there, and the energy in the room felt as though everyone was just barely managing to hold themselves upright. I started by asking them to think about the ground rules for our discussion. Begrudgingly, they participated, throwing out thoughts about listening, confidentiality, generally being kind to one another. And then I asked them to consider the broader, more aspirational question. Knowing we will fail, how do we want to try to be together? At this, the attention in the room picked up. Mostly, it felt like they were asking, where did this person come from and what is she even talking about? Knowing I will fail, I offered, I want to remember to risk bravery and vulnerability. There was a long moment of silence as the shifting mood and engagement rippled around the room. Knowing I will fail, I continued, I want to remember to make space for silence. There was another long moment of quiet. Knowing I will fail, I continued, I want to remember that I don't have to be perfect to be good. I turned and wrote this on the board. We don't have to be perfect to be good. I wish I could, I could claim this brilliant, beautiful line, but I can't. Radio host and blogger who goes by the pseudonym Jay Smooth uses this statement in his TEDx talk entitled, How I Stopped Worrying and Learned to Love Discussing Race. Jay asserts that we often use all or nothing thinking, which leads us to assume that our actions communicate that we are either a good person or a bad person. We are racist or not a racist. We are sexist or not sexist. We are mentally healthy or we are not. And this all-or-nothing approach, all, approach makes already difficult and nuanced conversations much more difficult because it puts us in the impossible position of believing that any indication that we are not perfect, which, being human, we are not, any indication that we are not perfect means that we are a bad person. 
Jay says, when you believe that you must be perfect in order to be good, it makes you averse to recognizing your own inevitable imperfections, and that lets them stagnate and grow. The belief that you must be perfect in order to be good is an obstacle to being as good as you can be. It would make our conversations with each other a lot smoother, and it would make us better at being good if we could recognize that we're not perfect and embrace that. Similarly, in her interview with Krista Tippett, Reverend Bailey says, I think one of the things that is so true is that we expect people to come out fully formed. And the reality is, if we're gonna do the work of what it means to grow into being fully human, to be in process, then we have to be teachable. We have to be moldable. We have to be willing to engage one another and be wrong sometimes. These ideals of perfection, this cultural pressure to do it all right all the time makes me think about white supremacy culture. White supremacy culture, as a reminder, is the concept that our cultural landscape is made up of systems of power, privilege, and oppression that disproportionately benefit those who are white. These concepts of individualism and perfectionism are deeply rooted in white supremacy culture, meaning that they are standards commonly held in society without us actively choosing them. Valuing, centering, and uplifting the ways we are inter interdependent is counter to how society tells us to be. Living the reminder that we are not meant to be perfect, that living, acting, and being in community is not meant to go smoothly 100% of the time, it's difficult, not only because conflict and community and broken vows are challenging, it is also difficult because it is countercultural to act in ways that embrace the learning and the conflict and the messiness that results from living fully human lives. Luckily, we do not do this work alone. I had the chance to join a meeting with the Community Relations Committee the other day, and they told me about the hard work they put into developing the Community Relations Pact. In the beginning paragraph, the pact states that it is a living document. It is clear to me that the pact is aspirational. It is a, an agreement of how we want to be together. We don't have to succeed at every point all the time because we can't. We are, none of us, fully formed. We are always in process. And the pact is also in process as it will change with us. Knowing we will fail, we engage in community anyway. We don't have to be perfect to be good. We just have to be moldable in the process as we learn and fail and relearn how to be human here together. When I think about my most intense learning in community, I think about Camp Greentop. Camp Greentop, held every summer in the Catoctin Mountains in Thurmont, Maryland, is a sleepaway camp run by the League for People with Disabilities. This camp looks like a regular summer camp in many ways. There are sports and games, nature walks, swimming, horseback riding, and campfires. 
but it is also quite different in that it serves children, adolescents, and adults with physical, cognitive, developmental, and sensory-related disabilities. The summer I was 19, I found myself working as a cabin leader for eight weeks in charge of a cabin of six to eight campers and four staff. We slept in cabins with, with electricity, which was necessary for charging the electric wheelchairs of my campers, but the accommodations were otherwise extremely rustic, with bathrooms down a long path through the woods and showers consisting of a spigot coming out of a hole in the wall. The staff members all fell somewhere in the 18 to 25-year-old range, and many of them came to work in the U.S. through an international camp program. There were language barriers, cultural differences we did not understand. There were counselors from Ireland, South Africa, and the Gambia. We had varying levels of comfort and expertise with the tasks we had to perform. Feeding, dressing, bathing, changing diapers, managing challenging behaviors, playing, swimming, consoling, and just generally caretaking the people in our care. That summer, my job was to keep various groups of eight people alive, mostly happy, fed, and semi-clean in a cabin in the woods. Unsurprisingly, 19-year-old me did not know what I was doing. What happens there, as often happens at summer camp, no matter the variety, was magical. I often felt overwhelmed. When I got my daily hour-long break, I sometimes cried from exhaustion and just trying to process all that was happening. But I was also filled with a deep sense of belonging and community and interdependence. More than anything, I realized that I could not do it alone. Yes, I needed my supervisors and I needed my fellow, my fellow staff members, but more than that, I realized that I needed the campers. I needed their humor, their wisdom, and their grace. I needed their forgiveness, their bravery, and their compassion. I needed their help and their understanding. The people I met that summer were my medicine. And I think I was theirs. My life was entirely changed because of the work I did that summer. Because of those relationships, my understanding of what it means to be beautifully, wholly human expanded. My understanding of community grew to include new concepts of belonging and inclusion, listening and value. My understanding of advocacy and allyship, accessibility and worth all changed. There was a deepening and also a rippling out as I and my fellow counselors and the campers learned how to draw our circle of community wider. If we were to survive the mosquitoes, the tantrums, the anxiety, the rain, the unknowing, and the fear, we needed us, all of us, to make it. One of the women I cared for was unable to use her arms or legs. She was fed through a tube in her stomach, and she was unable to use any method of communication. Over the 10 days she was in my care, she had barely sat up or opened her eyes. And on the last day we were together, I picked her up out of her wheelchair and I sat her in my lap. You know, my superior told me, 
you don't have to do all that work. Regardless, I sat holding this woman, dancing to the music and talking to her like I would talk to a friend. At the end of the evening, she opened her eyes, made direct eye contact, and broke into a smile. Her eyes were startlingly beautiful, deep brown with thick curled lashes, and they revealed a person who was curious, quiet, and present. In that moment, I was overcome with a sense of deep and profound, powerful humanity that expanded me and my capacity for love. Something broke my heart open and filled me and us and the relationship. Something bigger than either of us was present in that moment, and there we were together, uncertain and present in all the beauty and devastation that comes purely just by being alive. We could not be more different. I had certainly not seen or honored her full humanity at various points during our time together. I had broken my vows a thousand times, but it was clear to me that we needed each other and our relationship changed me. In the podcast I referenced earlier, Reverend Bailey says, there's a quote I love that says, we are each other's business. I know that the only way to get through is to be walking alongside one another in that journey, through the valleys and the mountaintops, and that means not giving up on each other, not casting each other aside, but inviting us into deeperness. Because it's when we do the work of walking alongside, of being with one another, that's where you start to foster community. Imperfect though we may be, when we engage the process of community, the promise of community, we belong to one another. We are each other's business. We don't have to be perfect. We will fail and break our promises, but there is power in accompanying one another. There is something revolutionary and countercultural even in accompanying one another with the promises and agreements of community. Knowing we will fail, let's be each other's business. Let's be each other's medicine. Let's remember the words of poet Aracellus Germain. Each of us are looking out from the gorgeous unlikelihood of our lives witnesses to each other's tenderness, which is another way of saying, you are who I love. You are who I love. You and you and you are who.
Thank you so much, Laura, for your words and Chorus for the beautiful music. This is the time in our platform service when your voice might be added to our reflections. If you have something that you would like to share, a reflection that you'll take into the week ahead, I invite you to raise your hand and I will come around with the microphone.